Throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, Blockbuster was the top video rental company in the United States. Uh, according to Business Insider, uh, in, their, in their heyday, there were around 9,000 Blockbuster stores worldwide. But then along came Redbox and Netflix, revolutionizing the movie rental industry with kiosk rentals. There, it seems like they're all over the place, outside of every McDonald's and gas station. And Netflix came along with, with no late fees and with, with flat monthly rates. And Blockbuster, they didn't keep up with the changing movie rental industry. And what was once a multi-billion dollar company with thousands of stores filed for bankruptcy in 2010, and now there's only one remaining Blockbuster store open in Bend, Oregon. It's almost more of a museum than, a, than an actual business. But as if to add insult to injury, Blockbuster could have teamed up with Netflix. They had an opportunity. They had their chance. And this, this instance is retold in an article entitled, Eight of the Biggest Business Mistakes in History from Inc.com, and as said by, by Inc., in the year 2000, quote, Netflix proposed that it would handle Blockbuster's online component for it, and Blockbuster could host its in-store component, thus eliminating the need for mailed DVDs. According to an interview with former Netflix CFO Barry McCarthy, when they, when they came to offer Blockbuster this business deal, this partnership, they just, he says, he says, they just laughed us out of their office. But it seems like Netflix has had the last laugh. Blockbuster missed out on a great opportunity because they didn't see the value of what was being presented them. They didn't see the value. They, they thought they could take care of themselves. They, they saw themselves as, as self-sufficient, that, that they could handle themselves. But they were wrong. They were wrong. Similarly to Blockbuster, we can often overestimate our own abilities. We often think that we have it together, that we can face what's coming, and we don't need help. But boy, can we be wrong. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. You can find this text on page 774 in the Pew Bible this morning. Matthew chapter 19. As we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus, in this section of his teaching, he's been talking a lot about the kingdom of heaven. And last time we were in Matthew, one of the things we considered was that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like children. Those who are like children. Not, not those that have a lot to bargain with. Those that can come with God and all of their self-sufficiency and, and try to make a deal with God. But those who come dependent as little children, trusting, looking for God's handouts, trusting his generosity, those who are, who are willing to take what God offers in simple faith, in simple trust, like a child. But what a contrast we have this morning 
As we read of a, a young man who is very independent, very self-sufficient. And though he does come to Jesus, he comes in the wrong way. So please uh, follow along as we read Matthew 19. And I'm going to ask, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 19, we'll start in verse 16 this morning. And behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You may be seated. Well, here in this story, we have an account of a young man who is very self-sufficient, very self-sufficient. He comes to Jesus saying, what must I do? Assuming that he could do what was required if he just, as long as he just knew what it was. This morning, I want us to see that we have nothing, that we have nothing, that we are utterly insufficient that we're bankrupt, spiritually speaking. We have nothing. Even if we, even if we can take care of ourselves in this world for the time being, even if we think we you know, of ourselves as pretty independent people, we do not even begin to understand how desperate our true need is. We must see this morning our utter insufficiency and God's all-sufficiency as the one 
who can supply our every need, including our greatest need for eternal life. And so I think the main lesson that this text puts before us is this, that unless Christ is our everything, we have nothing. Unless Christ is our everything, we have nothing. We'll see not only God's all-sufficiency, but but that in order for him to be everything for us, he must be our everything. In other words, he's got to be our all in all. We can't We can't just have Jesus as like a a bonus package or an add-on bonus content to to our other ways of doing life. He has to be our only hope, our, our only security, the one we look to, the one without whom we have no hope. We've got to be all in with Jesus because if if he's not our everything, we don't have him. We don't have him. That's the, that's the terms that Jesus sets down, as we'll see this morning. Our, our two main points this morning will, will be as follows. Unless we have Christ as our everything, first of all, we have no life or place in the kingdom. We have no life or place in the kingdom of God. But secondly, if Christ is our everything, we will have more in the end than we ever gave up for his sake. If Christ is our everything, we'll have more in the end than we ever gave up for his sake. So first of all, point number one this morning, unless Christ is our everything, we have no life, we have no place in the kingdom of heaven. We have no life or place in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 16, this this young man comes to Jesus and it's eternal life that he's after. He wants to know, how can I live forever? Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, no doubt, this young man was coming to Jesus with a sincere question. In Mark's account, he gives us the details that this man, he runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him. You know, he wasn't coming like the Pharisees came, you know, like snakes in the grass, waiting to pounce on, on Jesus, you know, as soon as he, as soon as he said the wrong thing. They weren't, he, this man wasn't coming to test Jesus with, with subtle hostility. No, he was coming to learn. Teacher, come teach me. I, I want to learn. Show me what I need to know. So this, he, this was a, a genuine young man. And that's a, that's a promising sign, especially for a young man, a man of such wealth and status, even, even a ruler, as one of the parallel accounts tells us. For him to be not just so caught up that that he doesn't have time to think about eternal things. Here he is. He's thinking about eternal life. What might we say to such a person? If, if, If a young man like that walked in our room, young, rising, business professional, beyond his his years and success, and yet coming here saying, you know, I'm I'm thinking about my relationship with God. What do I need to do to have eternal life? What might we say to such a person? You know, it's encouraging, too, that he's, he's looking in the right place. And he's coming to Jesus. But though he was looking for the right thing, and though he was looking in the right place, alas, he was looking in the wrong way. His approach, though sincere, was wrong. He was coming thinking that eternal life was something 
within his grasp. Something that he could, that there was something that he could do to get it. If he only had a little guidance, he would surely be able to gain it for himself. Perhaps much like he'd gained his wealth or his, his status as a ruler. He was approaching it in that way with an air of, of self-sufficiency. He may have been looking for a teacher, but he wasn't yet looking for a savior. Jesus responds in a way that's designed to, to undermine this man's self-sufficiency. Jesus initially, before answering the man's question, asks him one in return. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, what Jesus, what I believe he's hinting at here is, is putting focus on what Romans 3 makes crystal clear. That there is none righteous, no, not one. Not even one. There's only one good, and that's God. Not, so, so, in other words, he, he's already trying to hint to this young man, like, you're asking me about what's good, but there are none who are good except God. And that, that would include you. Not, you're not even good. You're not even good. By reasoning in this way, Jesus is, is starting to pierce a hole to deflate this man's self-righteousness, his, his high opinion of himself. And then Jesus points the man to the law, which is interesting. You know, if somebody walked, walked to us and asked us, what, what must I do to have eternal life? You know, oftentimes we quickly, we just start taking them through the, down the Romans road, you know, just, you just got to believe. But sometimes, church, this is, a, this is a good lesson for us, sometimes we've got to help people realize they're lost before we can help them get saved. We've got to help them realize their desperate need before they'll see their need for the Savior. You know, we all... Many people, many people tend to overestimate their own ability, their own righteousness. They think, like this rich young man, that eternal life is something within their grasp, that if they just follow the rules, if they just avoid certain things, they can earn it and achieve it for themselves. Maybe God's got to give them a little help, but overall, it's something that they can handle. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. That's a good slogan for us in our evangelism. If we've got a person that seems like they've got it together, sometimes we need to show them the law of God first. Show them that the law that they think they're doing a pretty good job of keeping, they're actually utterly failing to keep it. James 2.10 says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. If you're going to try to gain God's favor and gain eternal life through your performance, then you have to be completely perfect. You can't slip up even once. And so have you this morning? Have, have you been trying to do all the right things in order to have eternal life? Let me just tell you, the, according to the Bible, you've already messed up. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, this young man comes to Jesus and, and he says, you know, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, if you would have life, then keep the commandments. You know, if he could keep them perfectly, then yeah, 
if he had, if he had no sin. So that's, that's Jesus, that's where he's taking the man at first. And the young man, you know, he replies and says, well, which ones? And Jesus starts with those that have to do with loving one's fellow man. He recites five of the Ten Commandments, and then uh, one more comprehensive command from Leviticus 19 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. These commands should have given a, a telltale diagnosis of the condition of this man's love for God. It's not that these were the only commands that, that this man would have had to keep, but it's like Jesus is saying, let's start with these. Let's see, if, let's see how you're doing with, with these. Uh, in 1 John, it says, He who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And so what this would, tell, what this would say is if, if this man had slipped up at any point, if he'd, if he'd not loved his brother perfectly, if he'd not loved his neighbor as himself perfectly at all times, then that would also say something about how he had not loved God perfectly at all times. But surprisingly, this young man says, all these I have kept. Sure he had. <laughs> Evidently, um, I don't know if he'd missed Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he shows the, the true intention of the law, but evidently, he thought he was doing pretty good just as far as externals went. All these I have kept. Now at this point, probably some of us would have gotten a little snarky and we probably have got that smirk on our faces and say, all right, let's, let's see about this. But I'm, I'm amazed at how patient Jesus is. He's much more patient than, than I would probably be at this point. He, he passes up a, a, a slam dunk opportunity it seems like, and, and he, he says, all right then, well, let's, let's move on. And he says, he says, if you would then be perfect, go, sell all that you possess. You see, the, the young man still recognized something. He still, even after he said, all these I have kept, what does he say? He says, what do I still lack? See, he knew deep down that certainly there was something that wasn't quite measuring up. Certainly there was something more that he had to do. And so Jesus, in a very gentle way, begins to point to what is still remaining, what is still lacking for the man. In verse 21 he says, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So he walks away from Jesus, back to his house, his fine clothing, his rich food. He, he wasn't willing to give those things up. Even, at, even if, if it meant choosing between either those things, the comforts of this life, and following Jesus, he chose his possessions. You see, he wasn't willing to give up what mattered most to him. Jesus, Jesus is pointing out this man's true God. You see, he wasn't willing to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. He wasn't willing to make Christ his everything. 
He had a competing love, a competing source of security, something else that he trusted in too much, and the prospect of giving it up brought him too much insecurity, too much sorrow. He just couldn't bring himself to do it. He wasn't willing to let go for Christ's sake. In other words, his possessions were his God, his idol, and he was unwilling to repent. Now, if Jesus had said, follow me and, and keep, hold on to all those things, he probably wouldn't have minded having Jesus as sort of an add-on, as long as he could keep his other things. But that's not what Jesus is after. No man can serve two masters. He will either love the one or hate the other. Jesus recognizes that for this young man, he wasn't master of many possessions. He was mastered by his possessions. He was mastered by his possessions. And until he could trust Jesus enough to give those things up, there would be no eternal life for him. He was unwilling to trust Jesus. And so he walked away. His possessions possessed him. And this tells us something about the way of salvation. If we want to be saved, we must repent. We must turn from all else to follow Christ. He must be our everything or he is nothing to us. Jesus is not a little fire insurance policy that we keep safely locked away in a nice compartment and we pull out on Sundays and remind ourselves of. Jesus must be our everything. We must be willing to part with everything else if it came down to it. Even the, the comforts of life, all that we own, even, even our own lives for Christ's sake. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We must trust him enough to follow him even to the death. He must be our Lord, or else he is not our Savior. This man appeared to serve God. He thought of himself as one who, who loved God, who worshiped God, who kept the commandments. But in reality, the king of his life was his possessions. He was serving his wealth, and he didn't even recognize it. And that's the scary thing. That's the scary thing. If you'd gone up to this young man and asked him, hey, do you worship your wealth? Do you love your possessions more than you love God? Is money your God? He, you know, he, he would have said, no, of course not. He'd probably be super offended that you'd, even, that you'd even ask him such a question. No, I worship God, he would have said. One who had been so careful to obey as, as he thought, the six commands that Jesus listed, would have also been careful as he would have thought to obey God and to be concerned about his relationship with God. But when decision time came, pressed between his wealth and Jesus, he chose his wealth. He apparently didn't know his own heart as well as Jesus knew it. And so I would ask all of you, are earthly possessions your God this morning? Are earthly possessions your master, your God? How would you know? How would you know if they were? Notice what Jesus says in verses 
23 and 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. Uh, the, the whole idea that, that the eye of the needle was um, this little tiny gate in Jerusalem, uh, there's no evidence for that. That was probably a, a Middle Ages idea. Some people said the eye of the needle was this gate, and in order for camels to get through, to get into the city of Jerusalem, they'd have had to go on their knees and unload themselves of their packs. But the fact of the matter is there's just no solid evidence for that. Uh, there's, there's better evidence that this is a Jewish adaption of a, of a Persian uh, term for impossibility. You know, the way the Persians would put it was, you know, you, you can more, more, more easily do that than fit an elephant through the eye of a needle. And so in, in Palestine, the camel was the largest animal. So this was their way of saying, you know, it's easier for, for you to do that than uh, you, you can easy, more easily put a camel through the eye of a needle. It's, in other words, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's not just hard, it's impossible. Now, when I've read these verses in the past, who I've, who I've thought of is the rich, right? Who comes to your mind? I know for me, you know, it's like, okay, so Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, you know, they need to read this, this passage. But I hadn't thought of myself. In general, as Americans, we are the rich. This passage is talking about us. It's talking about us. About half of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. People who have incomes of $41,000, they're among the top 3% in terms of the richest in the world. According to one study, the vast majority of U.S. residents rank within the top 10% in terms of annual income. And so as we, as we think about these verses, just remember, they're, they're talking about us. We are the rich. We are the rich. Which is kind of scary because Jesus is saying, only with much difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So why does Jesus say this? What does this mean for us? Well, let's understand why Jesus says this first, and then that'll shed light on what this means for us. Why does Jesus say, speak of the difficulty with which a rich person will enter the kingdom, and, and even go on to say it's impossible? Well, we all have a tendency to look to other sources of security to other things than God. We tend, you know, it's, it's ironic. On our money, it says, in God we trust. Probably it ought to say, for, for the majority of Americans, in money we trust. Or in this bill, dollar bill I trust. What, what happens when our bank account starts to get low? Our anxiety goes up. We get anxious. Oh no, we, we don't feel safe anymore. I mean, and, and I'm preached to myself. I myself, even these past couple weeks, have battled this. I've had to remind myself, okay, my bank account number is not my security. That's not what 
That's not where my, my hope and my, my safety comes from. But still, riches give us this false sense of security. Proverbs 18.11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, like a high wall in his imagination. In his imagination. We, we look to our wealth as if it's going to protect us from the dangers, from the, the desperate need around us. We think ourselves secure as if we're in thick, high, fortified walls. But it's only in our imagination. I think it was, it was Matthew Henry that said that there's, there's great trouble in getting riches, great temptation in using them, and great anxiety in keeping them. The, the cares of this world. What did Jesus say in the, the parable of the, the wheat, of the, uh, the sower and the seed? Remember, there was, there was the seed that, that went down into rich soil and it sprung up, but what happened? The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choked it out and it proved unfruitful. Riches can choke out the word of God and keep us, bind us to this world and drag us to hell. Riches are deceitful. They can easily tempt and ensnare us. And so I believe this is why Jesus is saying that it's so difficult, even indeed impossible, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's one reason he's saying this, but there's another reason. There's another reason. Notice how the disciples respond. When Jesus says this, they say, who then can be saved? As if to say, if, if not the rich, then what hope is there for any of us? Now, why would they say that? The reason being, the reason they responded in such a way is in their minds, in their minds, uh, in, in the Jewish mind, being rich was associated with God's blessing. Uh, if you were rich, it was obviously the, the fact that God had been blessing you and that you had God's favor. And besides that, if you were rich, you could give more alms to the poor. You could bring more and better sacrifices to the temple. And so, therefore, if, if anyone had a good chance at being in the kingdom of God and having eternal life, in their minds, it would have been the rich. But Jesus turns that completely on its head, and he's, he's saying, it's impossible for a rich person. And so they're just utterly shocked. They're, they're greatly astonished, and they say, who then can be saved? If a rich person can be saved, what hope is there for the poor, for the rest of us? Now notice how Jesus responds. He res they, they ask a who question. They're asking, like, what kind of person can get salvation? And Jesus answers with more of a, of a how answer. He says it's impossible for man, period, for all people, not just the rich, anyone. No one is the right kind of person that can get salvation for themselves. No one. Not the rich, not this young ruler who had been so careful to live a good life and keep the commandments. No one. It's impossible for man to be saved and to enter the kingdom of ourselves. But then Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation is utterly impossible for us, and yet God is the one who can save. He is the one with the power to save. 
He gives life to those he pleases to give it. And so for us, this, should, this is designed by Jesus to level any and all senses of self-sufficiency. We have to recognize that we're utterly hopeless before God. Utterly hopeless. We, we have nothing. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Our only hope is that God will look upon us in mercy and save us, giving us what we utterly cannot deserve and cannot repay. That's the only way anyone will enter the kingdom. Well, before moving on to our second point, uh, one more thing about, about wealth. Since it is such a, a danger, even we as Christians, we need to be very careful with it. Wealth is like TNT. It can be very useful. We can move mountains with it, but if you get too attached to it, get too close to it, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. Uh, there's a story of George Whitfield getting up in the pulpit and saying, we have a very unusual prayer request this morning. A young man has come into great riches and he asks for prayer that he would not be destroyed by it and would use it rightly. And this reminds us that we should pray as much for the rich as we do for the poor, as they may be in the greater danger. Again, it's talking about us. We're in great danger that we won't be uh, deceived by our wealth and, and look to it instead of Christ. And so I would just, I would just encourage all of us. I'm not saying that, that it's wrong to have a savings account. It's, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have wealth, uh, wealth and riches. There is such a thing as a, as a rich disciple. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Uh, in 1 Timothy 6, there are instructions given to wealthy Christians. So I'm not saying that, that wealth in itself is evil, but it is very dangerous. And even as we save, even as we invest, even as we manage our assets, the question we need to ask ourselves is why? Why? Why am I making the financial decisions I'm making? Why am I choosing to save this money? Why am I choosing to invest here? Why am I choosing to hold on to this amount rather than giving it away? And so may the Lord help us to search our hearts. If we're looking to our wealth for security, then we're in a dangerous place. And we'd be better off living in a tent in the woods, <laughs> getting rid of all of it. So I would encourage you, um, just in thinking about your, your own wealth, go to 1 Timothy 6. There are, God doesn't necessarily tell all of us that we just need to get rid of all of our possessions and sell every bit of it and give to the poor, but he does give instructions on how we're to use our wealth to lay up treasure in heaven. It's all a question of what you value. What do you believe is worth having? Is it worth having the things of this world or are you looking for opportunities to lay up treasure there in heaven where moth does not corrupt, where thieves don't break in and steal? Why are you saving? Why are you investing? Why are you making the financial decisions you're making? What would Jesus say if he, if he audited your finances over the past few years? Would he, just based on the receipts and the transactions, what would, he think, would he think that you're laying up treasures in heaven or on earth? What would Jesus say? 
Well, moving on to our, our second point this morning. Unless Christ is our everything, we have nothing. But secondly, if Christ is our everything, if Christ is our everything, we will have more in the end than we ever gave up for his sake. You know, there's an old hymn that says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. But will it though? Do we really believe that? You know, as we go through this world, you know, we, we say, yes, it'll be worth it all. We'll understand it better by and by. You know, I've, it'll all be worth it in the end. But in the day to day, it can be very hard to live for eternity. It seems so far away. It seems so ethereal, like it's, like it's not even real. Look at what, look what Peter says in reply in verse 27. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? You know, perhaps the, the disciples hadn't given as, up as much as the rich man. They hadn't maybe sold all of their possessions. Uh, it seems like after Jesus' resurrection, they still had some fishing supplies because they went out fishing. But they had given up a lot. They had, they had left and, and followed Jesus. They'd left their businesses, their, their livelihoods. Matthew had left his tax booth. They stepped out in faith following Jesus. Only he knew where. And so what would they have? What about this treasure in heaven, Jesus? Tell us more. And the Lord reassures them that what they gain by following him is far more than anything that they'd given up. Jesus says in verses 28 and 29, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Christ points them to the world to come. He says in the new world, in the, in the regeneration as some translations have it. Uh, and this, is, this regeneration, this, this new world, this isn't speaking of of a personal regeneration, but it's speaking of the remaking of all things. It's, it's probably speaking of the new heavens and the new earth that is spoken of in Revelation 21, where, where God says, behold, I'm making all things new. At that time, when Jesus sits on his glorious throne, these disciples, these common, average, blue-collar, poverty-line people, they would be there enthroned with the king of kings. They would not be, they wouldn't be thinking that they had lost out in the end. What about for the rest of us? In verse 29, he speaks of, of everyone. He, he broadens out from just the 12 and he says, everyone who is left behind, whatever they've given up, whatever we've made, whatever sacrifices we've made to follow Jesus, will be richly rewarded. And then, oh, and by the way, you'll have eternal life too. He just kind of mentions that in passing. Like, and they will inherit eternal life. These, these, rich, these riches of blessing that God gives us, most of them are in the life to come, in the age to come. It is there that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be joy not mixed with sorrow. Peace not mixed with persecution. But even in this present time, 
Even, even now, in this time, God promises that what we've left behind, the new life to which we go, it'll be much better than what we've left behind. Now, don't think I'm preaching the prosperity gospel this morning. Um, I'm not saying that when you come to Jesus, all of a sudden you'll, you, might have, you might have lost one job, but you'll get, a, you'll get a new career and you'll have a higher salary than you did before and it'll all be success and prosperity. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there is a sense that, that Mark, Mark says that now in this time, you'll have manifold uh, fathers and sisters and brothers and, and lands. There is a sense, and, and he says, with persecutions in this time. And what I think, what I think some of these rewards are, what some of these, these blessings of following Christ are, even in this life, have to do with the local church. You know, at this time, the idea of leaving your family, of losing those family relationships for Christ's sake, especially in a Middle Eastern culture that was so tightly knit around family, that was just almost unthinkable. We, in our kind of individualized Western lifestyle where the family is largely broken down, we don't think of it as, as much of a big deal. But to be without your family, that would be crazy to the disciples. But but Jesus had, had clearly said, like, some of you will lose those family relationships. You'll be ostracized. You'll be disowned. You'll lose your inheritance, perhaps, that your, your father had, had stored up for you. But don't worry. You will have a new family. You'll have brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and nation in the family of God. You'll have a new community, even here in this life. You'll have, you may not have an, an, an inheritance of money, but you'll have joy unspeakable and full of glory, such that even when the Apostle Paul was sitting in his prison cell, writing to the Philippians, he didn't say, guys, this is just so dreadful. I mean, I'm just, I'm just suffering here, and one of these days it'll be worth it, but man, right now, no, what does he say? He says, I am well supplied and more, and I've learned in every situation to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He had something, he had a greater peace, a greater security than even Herod and his palace, surrounded by his guards and his fortified walls and all of his wealth. Paul in the dungeon was wealthier than him. And so, even, even now, in this life, believer, you will have more than you left behind of true wealth and in the age to come, eternal life. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Well, in closing, it all comes to this. We have nothing. We have nothing. We are utterly insufficient. Unlike Blockbuster, when Netflix came to make them a deal, we have nothing to bargain with. We're already bankrupt. We have nothing to offer God, no good works to gain us eternal life, no wealth that will last or gain us entrance into the kingdom of heaven or appease the God we've offended. We are completely at his mercy. Some don't see this. In unbelief, 
they trust in their own self-sufficiency, in their own works, in their own resources. They're not willing to let it go and simply trust in Jesus. But others, like Paul, they'll, they'll look at all that, they've, that they have, all that they would use to commend themselves to God, and they'll say, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, as, as rubbish, like a garbage heap in comparison with having Christ and having the righteousness that comes from him and knowing him. Do you trust Jesus? Are you willing to let all that go for his sake? Is Christ your everything? In God's kindness, he opens our blind eyes. He gives us faith to see that the things that we look to in this earth, they won't give us security. Our wealth is but poverty. If anything, it's a hindrance to getting into the kingdom. Our works are as filthy rags before him. But then he opens our eyes to see the one who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you know this Savior? This one who laid aside the crown of glory to wear the crown of thorns so that you could wear the crown of life. Do you know this Savior? Is he your everything this morning? How would you know? Would you be willing to walk away from everything for him if that's what he called you to do? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God. May we be able to say truly, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Oh Lord, may we count everything else that we have as, as nothing. May we hold it loosely. May we look, not look to it for joy or security or, or fulfillment. May you be our joy, our only hope, our only peace, our only security. Father God, may that may that be true of each one of us in this room and may that be reflected in the way we live. Oh Lord, give us eyes to see what is of true value, what is true wealth. In Jesus' name, amen.